Welcome to the Growth Hacking Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Ivan Palomino. This podcast is about thought-provoking ideas to scale up and growth hack performing and human-centric work cultures. My guests are experts on mindsets, skills, and science behind work cultures. I hope you enjoy this episode. I have the impression that there is kind of a dichotomy in the, the workplace. So from one side, you have corporations, which their main priority is to create value. And from the other side, there is humans, which our main priority is to be fulfilling life, to that our needs, all of our needs, which is not just the financial, but also the, the self-expression, the possibility to be better than the day before, um, the, the possibility to belong, to be part of something meaningful, that's something that is important. But... And, and there is this thought, in fact, that for many leaders still achieving performance, innovation and shareholder value cannot be achieved without sacrificing a little bit or scratching in this human fulfillment. Mm. Hmm. It's, and the thing is that there is a price to pay for humans not covering their needs. So mental health, who has become the like the big topics since three years almost, like we hear it every single day, uh, has a financial consequence. So we can talk about that when you have, uh, when you're facing mental health uh, challenges, you are four, four times more likely to say that you intend to leave your the workplace. You also report like three times more uh, wanting to leave your job uh, and there is two times more like you are two times more likely to report low engagement at work. Now, I have found someone who is capable of saying there is a way to live together with performance from one side and human fulfillment. There is a way. So, my guest today is Brandy Olson, who is an organizational agility expert. That's number one. Um, she has been teaching organizations to how to design agile or organizations. And, and we need to dig a little bit more about the definition of agility because also there, there is a little bit of misunderstanding what the hell is agility. So she's helping organizations to build high-performing teams and learn faster so that they can deliver outcomes, great outcomes without burning out. So balancing the human fulfillment with performance. She is the CEO of a great company called The Real Work Done, and she's the author of an amazing book, The Real Flow, Break the Burnout Cycle and Unlock High Performance in the New World of Work. So that is quite amazing, Brandy, and I, and I thank you very much for accepting my invitation for this podcast. Uh, and I, I would like to ask you, so I, I was talking about this dichotomy. So people cannot know that there could be a balance. What have you observed? What are the most usual and and sometimes wrong assumptions that leaders or even normal employees uh, have regarding productivity at work? Mm, well, thanks so much for inviting me into the conversation. I get super passionate about this topic of how do we design and lead high-performing organizations and um uh, sustain high well-being, right? The design organizations that don't print people out. So I think that it starts with this pattern that I have observed in every single organization that I've ever worked with over the last 20 years. 
um, all the way from large global Fortune 50 companies that are, you know, um, leading their financial markets to small nonprofits and universities. And the common challenge that I have observed is that almost every organization, there's an abundance of important work to do. Yeah. And there is um, a, the reality that there is a lot of important work and they're struggling to figure out how do we get it all done. And in that dynamic, and because of many of the ways that we've grown up to think about productivity, I think we substitute this idea that if I'm busy, the work I'm doing is important. And if I'm busy, I'm making progress. And I like to um, tell the story about um, when I was writing my book, um, I was really getting kind of sucked into that productivity mindset, right? The productivity mindset being that productivity equals the output, just what we create. And so when I was writing, I talked to a lot of authors and they told me about how important it was to have a writing habit, to set aside time each day to write, to really make progress. So I tried that, right? That's where I started. I'd never written a big book project before. And as I was going, it was going swimmingly well, um, except that I was starting my writing project right before the global pandemic started to unfold in 2020. So I was about three weeks in um, to writing and all of a sudden, world was in disarray and my life was a bit chaotic. And I was finding that even though I was setting aside an hour every day to write, I was making almost zero progress on my book and my chapters. And what I realized in, in doing that, going through those motions for a really long time, is that I wasn't getting anywhere close to my goal. And mm -hmm. the reality is that productivity isn't just about how much we produce. It, we have to understand our productivity in light of our goal. And so for me, my goal wasn't to develop a writing habit. My goal was to get a book published mm -hmm. um, and get these chapters written. And I wasn't getting there by just working on my writing habit. Um, I, that, that just wasn't the outcome I was after. So I, I totally reframed how I was thinking about productivity, not in terms of how much I was writing or how many words I was writing, but in terms of the sections in each chapter and the chapters that I was getting done. And what I learned was I couldn't write every day. I wasn't getting anywhere with that. What I actually needed was like longer chunks of time to write. So rather than making progress every single day on my book, I did these long weekend writing sprints about every six weeks. So I only worked on my book every mm -hmm. six weeks. Um, but I found that I was able to get so much more accomplished and get into the flow of writing and get to my goal, which was to finish a chapter or work on an edit or get interviews done, um, that I made a lot more progress over the course of six months than I was by being productive in my writing every single day. And mm -hmm. I think that that plays out in so many ways that we work, whether it's individual projects or work that we're doing within our organizations, as we wind up getting so focused on our output, how busy we are, that we can really quickly lose sight of whether or not we're getting anywhere close to the outcome, the real impact of our work. And that's it, specifically one of the most powerful urban legends that there is in the workplace. The number of hours that you're sitting in front of the laptop mm -hmm. is going to be equal to the value that you bring to the to the company. So it's almost like they see productivity as a linear thing. But mm -hmm. the, the, and I love your example. It's because when you are using your brain, let's use a, a smart word uh, cognition. Um, <clears throat> when you're using your brain, it, you, I mean, 
the, the thing is that, for instance, writing needs capacity for creativity. And you cannot have creativity if you have been constantly overheating your brain without mm -hmm. the brain, because you need to connect things that are not in front of your word processor, uh, mm -hmm. that you like spending time with your kids, the, fighting a little bit with the husband or the or the wife. Uh, so things mm -hmm. come, creativity comes like in bursts that are not in, in line with the time that we spend. So it's not, mm -hmm. uh, it's not linear. And you mentioned another effect is about the context of where you are, when you are maybe, I'm thinking about the times of COVID, you are a little bit stressed also because you have put yourself a target that, oh, I need to make this, 1,000 mm -hmm. words in, in within two hours mm -hmm. and a little bit of stress and uh, under stress, our brain is, is not functioning at, at the optimal uh, level, right? Yes. Well, so one of the things that I research and bring into my writing and the work that I do with organizations is cognitive science. How do we as humans actually solve complex problems and do good work together? And then how does that add up to doing work together in organizations? But one of the things that's true about our brains is the part of our brain that is responsible for creativity is the same part of our brain that's also responsible for other, we call them executive function activities. And those activities are things like problem solving, communication management, working memory, how we're remembering what's happening right around us and using that to get work done. It's also the same part of our brain that's responsible for something called context switching. Context yes. switching is what happens when we go from, you know, um, writing to taking care of my kids to an email to this conversation we're having right now. And that part of our brain that manages our executive function activities operates in a really particular way. And that particular way is we can only do one executive function at a time. It's called mm -hmm. the bottleneck phenomenon. And researchers have looked at this over and over and over for the last 50 to 60 years to figure out if there is a way that we can overcome the bottleneck phenomenon. Could we get our brain to do more than one executive function activity at a time? Because that would be more convenient if we could context switch and be really creative and listen at the same time. But we can't. What our brain does is we we move through those tasks rapidly, so rapidly that you barely even notice it. And it feels like I am listening to you and I am engaging in this conversation and I'm, you know, turning my phone off that's buzzing over there. It feels like I'm doing that all at the same time, but I'm actually not. I'm doing this rapid switch between all of those tasks. So coming back to creativity, um, when we experience uh, stressors, when we experience all sorts of things in our environment, um, that impacts our ability to cycle through those executive functioning tasks. So it impacts our speed at which we can do that. It impacts how our bodies feel when we're doing that. And if we are in a state of context switching, which so many of us are all day long, um, our brain literally can't do the same work of creative thinking at the same time um, that we are responding to an email and we are taking this call and we are in this conversation. Mm. So the way that we work um, has, a, has a really like biophysical component to it and how our brains actually work through this type of really complex, advanced um, human thinking and creativity. So we got, in fact, understood 
So the two bullshit phenomena that we have in the workplace that I have heard it in my own workplace is the one is about productivity equal to long hours. Mm-hmm. Of, and the second one is about the multitasking story, uh, mm-hmm. which really they believe that it should be a principle to work in many things at the same time. Uh, yep. and so, and the reason why these two things do not work are rooted on how our brain processes information mm-hmm. is not out of the of a well-being guru sitting in Goa, India and thinking about it. No, this mm-hmm. is science is not invented. Yep. It's just a fundamental principle about hum- how humans do good work and solve problems. And we've evolved, our brains have evolved to work in this way over millennia. And yet we confront that with our modern workplace, which deals with the reality that there is an abundance of important work to do. That can be true. And it can also be true that our brains do that work in particular ways. Mm. And that it is much easier to understand how we work as humans and to work with that, with those principles, than it is to try to change millions of years of evolution, little DNA in our brains, right? Um, And yet... I think there's so much effort pushed towards multitasking, getting things done all at the same time, working in these really inhuman ways because it's alluring, it's appealing. It would be so much more convenient if we could in fact take all of the important work and get it all done at the same time without cost. um, Sure, that would be more convenient. It's just not reality. And one of my core deep, deeply held beliefs in life is that the only place that good work happens is in reality. And so we need to as effectively and quickly as possible, embrace what's true, what's real, and then get to work rather than spending so much time trying to create these like fantasy um, work environments in which somehow it looks nice on paper, but it actually doesn't work in reality. Um, Cause that's just a lot of wasted effort and there's too much important work to do in our world to waste time trying yeah. to create some fantasy that's never going to exist. Indeed. Well, while you were talking, in fact, I was thinking, I, I got back this memory that in the marketing department where I was part, uh, we used to have two days brainstorming sessions. Mm. So can you imagine 16 hours? of constantly discussing with people and trying to generate ideas. And let me tell you something. Very often we ended up with really bad, bad ideas. Mm. And I was thinking, so is that with pressure that we can get out of people a a good idea? No. And only later on, when I started reading a little bit about how the brain functions, I understood that, wow, the most counterintuitive way of doing it is to do this linear way of spending 16 hours. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, there's this inherent tension between creativity and innovation and predictability. And it comes into play because as companies and organizations, we want predictability. It's comforting. We can plan better. We can know what's Mm going to happen. We also want innovation, right? Uh, study after study comes out saying that organizations and CEOs identify that innovation is one of the most important skill sets that they need in their companies and that there's concern that there's not enough of it, right? That we don't have the skills of innovation that we need. And yet 
most of our organizations are designed to help us uh, designed for predictability. But even that, I hesitate as I say that because we don't actually have predictability because uh, most organizations are just designed to look predictable on paper. Um, but in reality, uh, change is happening all the time. And this is the agility piece of how we design organizations. We need to have organizations and teams that can respond to change, which is what agility ultimately is. Um, and the reality is change is coming at us from so many directions in so many ways, and we can't always predict or control it. Mm -hmm. um, and we also have this desire for breakthrough ideas, innovative, creative thinking, and that is inherently unpredictable. But it's not out of our control, right? There's really a lot of um, science and practice that helps us understand what the conditions are for creativity and innovation. It's actually not locking people in a room for two days and saying, come up with the best idea by the end of it. Um, the conditions for innovation are really grounded in more learning experiment cycles, action, <laughs> learning, um, action, learning, and being open to the possibility that a creative idea might emerge from somewhere totally unexpected at an unexpected time, right? But there's this tension. Innovation is inherently unpredictable, and yet most of our organizations want to hold tight in their grip, predictability and control. Hmm. And those things just don't exist together in the same way. Indeed. Uh, I, I want to, to jump to, to the consequence of not fulfilling the, the, the our human needs. Uh, so, and what we all have noticed, and, and I mentioned it before a little bit, uh, so the discussion about mental health, and despite that burnout uh, is a, now a common word in our vocabulary. Um, I was discussing with my mother about burnout, mm. 72, uh, so I, I, I and she could understand, she has heard about it. So that's, mm -hmm. that's good. And yep. I was discussing about it like three hours ago, by the way. Yeah. So there is this association of burnout with overwork. Like you get burnout because you work a lot. Mm. And this is what something that has to stay in the minds of, of, of a lot of people. But I have the impression that inside of the Pandora box of, of burnout, there is more than just working long hours. Mm -hmm. And the, the reason, I, and I mentioned to you, I'm not a psychologist, and I can tell you that today as an entrepreneur, I work longer hours than back in my days in, in corporate, uh, but I don't feel them as much. Every mm -hmm. hour in my, in my corporate life was counting for 10 hours of my, my life as an entrepreneur. So what does science tell us about what is exactly burnout uh, and, and what, what is the root cause? Yeah. So really burnout means a lot of things to a lot of different people, right? It's one of those interesting words that we can hear and feel like you can just hear the word burnout and feel that like feeling of just depletion um, or recognize it in someone, but it, it can be caused by overwork, but it's actually characterized the way that um, the world health organization talks about burnout is more about um, chronic stress. That's not managed and how that shows up is in lack of energy or exhaustion. So really burnout is a whole lot more about our energy than yeah. just time, right? But uh, feelings of energy depletion or exhaustion, distance or negative um, energy from the work that we're doing, right? So how much we love the work 
is one factor that helps to shape um, whether or not we experience stress from that work. Although it's not the only thing you can love your work and still feel burned out by it. Um, mm. And then the cumulative effect of that is really a lack of agency and effectiveness in our work. And so when that stress can be caused by overwork, but can also be caused by toxic relationships, can be caused by um, challenges in a team. It can be caused by competing priorities and being in that zone of constantly context switching all day long, being phenomenally busy, um, but not getting much done. Those can cumulatively lead to um, the experience of burnout. It can also be caused by trauma and all sorts of things in our workplace, but the effect is how it impacts our energy, our chronic stress, and our um, experience of efficacy when it comes to our work. Two points that stay with me. So the fact that burnout is related to the uh, to the quality of the energy and mm -hmm. the quantity, I guess. Uh, you mentioned effectiveness, and then I I, I was thinking the, uh, about the word this control. So as humans, we want, we aim to have a little bit of control of our, our life. We ultimate, if we go into higher philosophical uh, spheres, then we can say we want to be God. We want to tame the, our environment so that it becomes more predictable for us. Mm -hmm. So, And you mentioned stress. Uh, you mentioned uh, relationships that kind of, that are outside of our, our control. And then when, when they being born out, it almost feels like not having the control of, of your life. Ultimately, mm -hmm. you freeze in front of the computer because you feel like anything that you do, the step that you will do next will not have any impact to your dishumanization. I, one day I will learn English. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you so. probably got better words than we do to describe that. So this sense of control is so important for us. Like to feel human, we need to have yes, something yes. that we we, we dominate. <clears throat> um, yeah, and we lose it when we are in, in mm -hmm. the middle of a, of a burnout. Uh, thank you very much for this explanation. So energy and effectiveness in managing our life. Managing what's happening around us. So like, let me give you an example of how that often shows up. Because the other thing about burnout is, we often treat it as an individual problem because we experience burnout individually as humans. Mm. But when people are experiencing burnout, we often treat it as an individual problem with individual solutions. And we put the onus of solving burnout on the individual. You yeah. need better work-life balance. You should take some mental health days. You should manage your work differently. You should, you should, you should. And the reality is that burnout, when it comes to burnout in the environment of our work, we can get burned out from caregiving and from other stressors in our lives. So I want to acknowledge that work is not the only source of burnout, but that's my area of expertise, right? Yeah. So when, when it comes to burnout at work, burnout is a systemic problem. Yes. Um, there's an adage that is often attributed to Edward Deming that says that organizations, the results organizations are getting are the ones are exactly designed to get. So if you have an organization where people are experiencing burnout or overwork or leaving or having um, poor well-being, there's something in the way your work is designed that is causing that. 
it's not just the deficits in those individuals. It is the system. So I get really interested in what do leaders do when they are leading an organization? How can they take action to design an organization that doesn't cause burnout, um, that gets us out of this binary thinking that either we get high well-being or we get high performance? Um, and that binary is a false, it's a false relationship. That's not actually how high performance and well-being work. And so, you know, I was coming to this work a few years ago um, in a convert, there's a conversation that I had with somebody that I was um, interviewing. I'd been brought in to um, work with an organization on their design and culture. And I was doing these series of interviews around um, team performance. It was a biotech company. And I was interviewing this woman who was a, a team lead of a lab. Um, and they were doing this really important cancer research. And she'd been, she was really passionate about her work. She understood the impact that it was having. Um, but recently in the last few months, the lab next door to them, that team lead left. And so she'd been asked to lead both labs. So she said, mm -hmm. yes. So she was telling me about how she was leading both labs and they were doing really important work. She was working like 60, 70 hours a week. And she said, you know, exhaustion is just the price to pay for high performance. I'm at the top of my game and I am loving my work. And then a few sentences later, she also said that she was thinking about finding another job because she just wasn't sure how long she could sustain that pace. And it was having a really negative impact on her own well-being and her family. Even in that conversation, those two realities were totally disconnected from her, right? She felt like high performance meant that she had to be exhausted um, and that she was working hard and also recognizing that she wasn't able to sustain that. And what I got really interested in is what would be the impact to that company if she left? Like, yes, the work that she was doing was really important and everybody felt like it was critical and they had to keep doing it in the short term. But like, if she left, the loss and the cost to that organization and the work that they were doing would have been monumental. So what does the leader of that company do? Because... How did, because it is their ultimate responsibility to design an organization that doesn't burn people out because that's short-sighted. That's the opposite of performance. If we only are looking at performance in the immediate short-term and not how do we sustain it, um, then we're really missing out on what we're capable of as humans. And that was the conversation that got me starting down this path of deeper research and ultimately writing this book. And it's become um, really one of those shining lights that I think about over and over again, that too often we put people in positions where they have to choose between doing good work and their own humanity. Mm. And that's a false choice in almost every situation. Uh, Brandy, I, I really love this conversation because I, I mean, I, I wouldn't have said it differently. Uh, this, this idea that to put burnout as the responsibility of the individual enough because as you say very often it is a, it is a systemic uh problem a, a systemic mm -hmm. challenge and, and that has a name is is the, the work culture that you are around what do they value for instance mm -hmm. the boss of this person that you mentioned in, in the lab uh, do they do they have as a value of caring about people like caring not about the outcome what you produce mm -hmm caring as a human being about how do you how are you feeling so mm -hmm. there is a, a high correlation between the cultural values that 
not that are the ones that are publishing the website, but the ones that they actually practice in the mm-hmm. company. <laughs> yep. And 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 burnout because I I still remember that. Um, well, it, it's also kind of a personal story. I, I I feel like the values of a company can affect you so much when you are not feeling part of it. If you don't feel yes. like being a killer, like uh, a killer, like competition, punching the, mm-hmm. the other, and you feel like alone, then you have this, mm-hmm. hey, values of the company are not matching with me. I feel damn alone. And that mm-hmm. grows in you little by little. I think that for me, it took kind of five years since the moment I identified the seed moment where I started thinking about it, how much mm-hmm. I was belonging to the, to the culture uh, until the bad mm-hmm. happened. Yeah. Well, and that is a, and that's, I can't under overestimate. Oh, I can't speak. <laughs> I can't overstate. It's impossible to overstate how critical that is. And it comes back to how our brains are processing what's happening around us, right? It's mm-hmm. not critical. It's critical because it's just how, you know, being a good human in the world and caring about the well being of others matters. But it also is really critical because it, that experience of having, dissonance between the like lived values of an organization and then how you fit into that impacts our response to stress. It impacts our ability to think. It impacts our executive function that we talked about before. When you're experiencing stress, chronic stress that often comes from um, some level of burnout in an organization, your amygdala, the part of your brain that manages and responds to stress grows. It grows because you're experiencing a lot of stress. So your brain's like, huh, we need more power here. And so your amygdala can grow and get enlarged. And when that happens, it increases your stress response. It increases the part of your brain that is trying to perceive threats and survival um, in the workplace. And so our stress response is increased. At the same time, the energy that we have available for those executive function tasks, those creative problem solving and analysis and listening and context management, all of that decreases. And so not only do we start to experience this stress, but it has a real impact physiologically on how we do our work. Hmm. In the case of the woman that I shared, you know, who's this lab team lead um, at this biotech company, the leaders there actually really did care about their employees. And one of the reasons they brought me in is because they were feeling this disconnect between like, we do care how people are experiencing their work and how people are showing up to work and we care about our outcomes, but there's this mismatch. People are burning out and they are leaving and it feels impossible. They didn't know what to do next. In the course of the conversations that we had, the interviews that we had, and then the sharing of the insights back with that leadership team, I am happy to report that they did make some significant changes. Um, And that woman didn't leave. Um, She was really close to leaving, but she didn't. And it was because there were some really significant shifts that happened um, at a leadership level and how they were choosing and prioritizing their work that changed the pace, right? That made it more sustainable for that lab leader to stay and for others to stay. And, um, and so I think that oftentimes we have people in leadership positions who do care about other people and they also care about doing good work and they feel that tension, that binary of it's either well-being or it's high performance. 
And if we want to address the, the fear, I think that leaders have is if we want to address well-being, we're going to have to lower our expectations. We might have to accept less from people. We might have to, you know, reconceptualize ourselves as not being the high performers that we thought we would. There's all these like messages and illusions out there that make us think that. Mm-hmm. And so it makes it hard to take action. Um, when in reality, you don't have to lower your expectations or accept less or be less of a performer. In fact, the opposite is true, right? High well-being is the path to sustainable performance. Something that is quite funny is like, you probably have heard in the US some jokes about French people, huh? because they actually work less hours than the world average. Mm-hmm. But there is, there has been not one, but several research that in terms of productivity, they are amazing. And then you compare to Japanese that work like much more than the Americans in, in mm-hmm. uh, average. And the guys in terms of productivity, it is not that amazing. Isn't it crazy? Uh-huh. Not linear with the number of hours, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because we accept that equation, right? In, in the US culture, right? In a lot of cultures that have a high productivity value, we kind of accept as truth that more work equals more results. And we don't question that. Um, When in reality, more work does not translate to more results inherently, right? And, um, and we need to peel back, why do we think that that's true? And what is the reality underneath that? If we actually care about the results, if you don't care about the results, if you really truly only care about your short term profit, um, bottom line, and it doesn't matter to you how you get there. You are comfortable with using humans as the cost to that short-term profit. This conversation isn't for you, right? Mm -hmm. Um, if you do actually care about the results, if you want to lead a company that's going to be leading the markets a decade from now, two decades from now, um, and if you understand that humans are the way there, then we've got to examine those assumptions that we have about what productivity is how we get good work done. And there's a very different conversation to be had. Hmm. In, in the last maybe 20 years, the concepts or, or, or kind of the processes of agile and lean approach have, have been, so we talk about it more and more because it, it allows organizations to go kind of faster and closer to the user or consumer expectations. But the funny thing is that it has been mainly used by tech companies. And I found it quite interesting that you have mentioned in your book um, the concept of agile in order to create thriving work cultures. So how do you do that, Brandy? So agility, agile, lean, right? These are all buzzwords, jargon words that get thrown around a lot. For me, what it means, agility, my definition there is it's our capacity to respond and create change in order to deliver on better outcomes. It's all about how we respond to change. Now, under that like capital A umbrella of agile, you'll find lots of people talking about lots of different frameworks and tactics and more jargony words to use there. But fundamentally at the beginning and end of the day, it's how do we get good work done together and change is a part of that. So a lot of my work um, has been in technology companies and has been with software organizations trying to figure out what that means for them, because fundamentally they're solving complex problems. Software, digital products, technology, those are really complex 
products and services. So they're solving complex problems where change happens a lot and people are doing the work. My side note would be, I don't think that AI changes anything about that fundamental challenge, right? People are still the way that we solve the most complex problems. So that's what technology companies are doing. Those fundamental principles about how do we design ourselves for change? How do we design our teams, the way we choose our work, the way we frame up our work and what success looks like that are true in a technology company that's solving a complex technology problem? Those fundamental principles are also true anywhere. Humans are trying to get together solving complex problems together. The reality is about agile or even lean is there's nothing new and magical about it. Um, that yeah, you know, 25 years ago, a group of software developers started getting together and they started talking about what does this mean for software? And they really popularized a lot of the terminology. But the reality is those ideas weren't created in software. Those principles about how do we solve complex problems together are the ways that change makers have always solved complex problems. And there's a long history and root of how do we work together? How do we collaborate more effectively? How do we use across um, diverse skill sets and experiences to come together to form a team? How do we respond to change? All of those things, there's nothing new under the sun about agility. Um, and so anytime you've got a group of people solving a complex problem, whether that is in marketing, um, at a university, whether they're doing cancer research. I worked with a um, nonprofit that trains service dogs to work with people um, with vision loss around agility. How do we design ourselves to be more adaptive? These principles matter and they're they're useful. Hmm. In my context, because I, I've been working a little bit in tech, and it, it, so the, the principles of agile is simply, it, it's, as you say, they are not that difficult because if we think about Toyota doing it, somehow with the Kaizen model in the 60s. So we can, mm -hmm. we can say that yeah, they got an inspiration from, uh, from Asia. Uh, the principles of Agile is simply about having continuous iteration. So instead of having a linear way of delivering a product like alone, I'm going to describe what are the features of my product and maybe one year later, later I'm going to be delivering. It's about saying, I'm going to deliver a couple of features based on the needs of, of, of the, the final users. So you need a lot of empathy. Mm -hmm. You need to, to know what these guys uh, need, uh, in fact. And then from there, we'll have some data to validate if this is really what they, they want. And then I will move, if this is it, then I will move to the next uh, iteration. So, and it mm -hmm. needs to have different perspectives. As you said, it's not about having an IT department or an HR department working mm -hmm. only alone in, in, in a project is multitude of visions in order to make a high performing uh, team that is collaborative with a lot of inclusivity, a lot of points of, of view. But main idea is to say, let's improve things from within little by little instead of expecting a big jump with a product that maybe nobody wants. It's about mm -hmm. reducing the failure of, of non-acceptance of a service or a product that you, that, that, that you may have. And, all of the ingredients of good work cultures can be represented in this microenvironment team of seven people that we will be working together. And that makes you practice what you want as a culture overall in, uh, in the company. Love it, Brandy. Exactly. It's about how fast can we learn together? 
That's, yeah. I think, fundamentally what enables us to respond to change, to be highly iterative, and to create things of real value for others and um, outcomes that really matter and value that matters to our customers or the people that we're in service of. It hmm. all comes back to that, right? How do we learn better together, more effectively? Honestly, I think that that learning piece is truly the most important competitive advantage that any company can cultivate. It's the capacity to learn fast together because that's gonna be what enables you to respond to whatever changes are happening all over the place. That's gonna be much more valuable than um, having the perfect organizational structure or hierarchy or you know pick, pick and choose perfect plan. Learning yeah. is, is what enables that true high performance. Exactly. So I, I was just being a little bit uh, sarcastic in my head, thinking that today when you so a company wants a true transformation, they start by throwing technology. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. I And then they invest millions and millions and then people do not follow. Then they have resistance and then they have to throw out their millions invested in the technology. Anyways. Mm -hmm. Oh, we could go. We could go in that direction for a long time. That'll conversation for another day. Oh yes, I wanted to get back to your book. So the real flow, and when you hear about flow, then I couldn't stop thinking about this old man called Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, who was like kind of a psychologist who invented this concept of flow, where there is this balance of of, of productivity productivity and creativity and his work was done like 30 years ago mm -hmm. so the guy he died maybe last year right in 2022 mm -hmm. I remember yeah. that I read it in the news in the magazine I, I no, not in the newspaper <laughs> <laughs> so he uh, he published his uh, about flow 30 years ago what do you think are the so if if that work has been already there for 30 years. What is the, the, the major frictions that organizations have to apply these principles of optimal productivity? Mm -hmm. Some of them, half of the HR people are psychologists, by the way. And you mm -hmm. can avoid to read about him if you if you have done psycholo uh, psychology. So mm -hmm. they don't yeah. apply I love Mahali's work and he talks about flow in, in particular in the creative process. And he talks about flow being the enjoyment of the creative process and how we move through it. If you're not familiar with his work, if you're listening, go look him up because it's really powerful. And you're right. The understanding of what flow is and how we experience it as humans has been around for a really long time. And the understanding around how our brains work has been around for a really long time. And yet Many of us either are working in organizations or know people who are working in organizations who are left organizations because we aren't experiencing that flow because everything is just slow and chopped up. And one of the things that I've learned in working with leaders across the globe over the last 15 to 20 years is that the knowledge of the right way to work or good way to work doesn't necessarily translate to understanding and action. Yeah. Right. We can know. I've never met a leader who says focus is bad. Every leader I've always ever met talks about, you know, they understand focus is really important. And yet many organizations suffer from fractured focus because they're pursuing too many competing priorities at the same time. And that 
disrupts flow. So I, I think there's two really fundamental things that I see over and over that keep flow. And in terms of organizations, you know, I would talk about the flow of value. How do you go from an idea to something that gets into the hands of somebody who wants it and can use it? Lots of strategies there. But there's two things that I think get in the way that break down that gap between knowledge and understanding and action. One is competing priorities. When organizations pursue too much work at the same time, I call it organizational multitasking. It's when the amount of work exceeds our capacity to do the work with quality. Um, there's every organization, every team, and every human has some sort of boundary around how much can we do at the exact same time. It may be more than one thing, but there's a limit to it. At some point, you're going to experience where I'm pursuing too much at the same time, quality is suffering, my well-being is suffering, and we're not getting the outcomes we need. Um, I talked to a CEO a couple of weeks ago, and she said, my executive team is phenomenally busy. We are working so hard, and we're not getting anything done. And she was saying this to me in this, like, I can't say that out loud. Out loud, what I have to say is, good job, everyone. <laughs> but this is the thing that was keeping her up at night. So it, competing priorities interrupts flow. Um, there's a lot of strategies and I, I talk about them in my book about what to do instead, but, th but that's one of them. The other thing that interrupts flow in organizations is the division of how we're organized, right? When you have HR in one department and you have technology in a different department and the sales team is over here and you've got your operational team over there, the, the way that you get value in an organization is it goes from the idea of the people through the iterations through the testing, through the learning, all the way through, it has to move through all of those domains to get to somebody who can actually use it. And so when we design organizations with these silos and departments that are based on just one slice of the value flow, if we're not really intentional about that, we just are constantly disrupting the flow, making it harder for that value and those ideas to move through, to learn fast, to deliver. And that kills flow in so many organizations. So if I understand correctly, you are saying that organizationally, we should be organized more into to solve a challenge, a specific challenge. Hey, how do we get better, more customers, for instance? Mm -hmm. And it can be a mix of people that you can call, I don't know, tribe, uh, squad. I have heard the name of the squad. Mm -hmm. so um, yep. What do you call it? But it's a mix of people that are focused on solving a, a, a challenge from different perspectives in a collaborative way. Because having, for instance, and this is always a discussion, and that's one of the reasons why for many years human resources has got very bad reputation that they have been, it was a dump of whatever administration the business didn't want to do, throw it to, uh, to human resources. Mm -hmm. And even when you hear that culture is the responsibility of human resources, that is something that really hurts my right. heart. Can you see how big my eyes are getting when you say yeah, that, exactly. right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God, Brandy. Um, tell me, so let's imagine the catastrophe scenario. So 10 years from now, organizations have been incapable of managing to address the flood challenge because you call it flood so to, to, opposite to flow yep so what happens in 10 years time what do you think it can happen in organizations that do not move away from this overload of things Stop yeah, the I, mean, I use that word flood 
because it, it, to me, it is the opposite of flow. And the reason I use that word is because you can be, and I tell this story in my book, you can be in a flooded river. Um, I've been, I love to kayak and paddle. And if you're a paddler or you spend time in a river, you know that you can be in a river where the water is moving incredibly fast. There's a flood. And yet you, as the paddler in the boat, are moving incredibly slow. The water is moving fast around you, but you are moving so slow because there's impediments and obstacles in the way. And that's a really different experience than being in a river that is flowing fast and you are moving fast too. And so many of our work in organizations that are in a flood and we don't reckon, we feel it, but we don't see it because the water is moving fast around us. And so that has the appearance of flow. But when you start to look at what's happening, what you see is you have quality issues, right? So if you're a, an organization, if you're a leader or a team, and you've been working in the, a flooded organization for years, you're, it's not going to take years to see these problems emerge, but you're going to have you're going to see quality issues, right? You're going to start to see challenges with turnover and people leaving, burnout. One of the biggest challenges of being in a flooded organization is yes, people leaving, but it's also the people who stay, who are working at low grades of burnout and unmanageable stress, but they don't leave. They stay. They're not um, able to bring their best work. Um, And there's a lot of cost to that. Um, a flooded organization is one that deals with unresolved competing priorities and that struggles to get people together. Um, in the book, I've got a, a little quiz. Actually, it's on my website too. We can link to it. The flood quiz, how to know oh. if you're in a flooded organization, right? What are some of the symptoms? Because oftentimes those symptoms appear at the top and we try to just tackle it, right? We've got a burnout problem. HR should focus more on wellness rather than saying we've got a burnout problem we need to look at how we're prioritizing our work, which is a business strategy question, right? So in a flooded organization, we just tend to like tackle symptoms, kind of like whack-a-mole, rather than really looking and understanding what's causing the flood, what's getting in our way, and what do we need to do to design ourselves and our work and our teams to enable that flow. The costs are devastating. Edward Deming calls these heavy losses costs of immeasurable magnitude that are difficult to quantify Hmm. and flooded organizations deal with heavy losses that aren't showing up on the balance sheet and yet are costing in a very quantifiable way, significant portions of their revenue and their budget. And then ultimately the human cost, um, which is not what is going to lead to that high performing organization that sticks around for a long time. I want to believe your story about the balance sheet because I am also aware that when we do something wrong in organizations, we tend to hide it. So in the balance sheet, you can hide a lot of things that you mm-hmm. don't want to, to show. Yep. Listen, and this is something for the for for the audience. So I have the impression that through reading the book, The Real Flow, uh, your book, Brandy, uh, it's called The Real Flow, Break the Burnout Cycle and Unlock High Performance in the New World of Work. So it's kind of like practical ideas to transform and balance productivity and well-being in an organization, but that is tangible, that is not based on uh, good recommendations from grandmas, but it, it is more... Mm-hmm using the, the science behind understanding how the brain processes 
both of the of the side, the productivity and and, and create creativity. Uh, and so I, I would really recommend everybody to to read. And and by the way, I'm going to put the link just below this uh, this episode so that you can have a look and um, take the decision. Brandy, how can people uh, find you? How can they contact you? Yes, well, I would love you to come find me on LinkedIn. I am creating conversations with other leaders who really do care and are struggling with the abundance of important work to do and also deeply care about the humans who are doing the work. So come find me on LinkedIn and be part of that conversation. You can also find my work at realworkdone.com. We teach mm -hmm. leaders how to design organizations that get real work done because that's what it is at the end of the day. Well-being is great, but if you lead an organization, the real work matters. You're in it to create something together that delivers an outcome. So you can find me there. I write there. I write twice a month, um, real work together, uh, a letter for leaders, and you can join me there. And of course, I'd love you to grab a copy of the book and read that as well, because this is a conversation, not about ideas in the sky that sound really nice, but in reality, boots on the ground, when you are in a fast paced environment and there's an abundance of work to do, how do you get out of the flood? And that's the conversation that I would um, love to keep having with listeners. Brandy, it was lovely to have you today. Really, I really appreciated all your science and I think the purpose of what you are doing, I and that because we need more of people who can explain in an easier manner uh, science that that there is behind. Uh, uh, how do we feel at work? Because there is pain, and it has been mm -hmm. hasn't been improving. I have been reading certain numbers, especially now that I'm I'm living in the Middle East. The numbers of of how we uh, how do you feel at work in terms of well-being mm -hmm. in the Middle East are horrible. Mm. And mm -hmm. I, I thought that there was an improvement, but no. Brandy, mm. so, mm -hmm. thank you very much for your time today. Thanks so much, Ivan. It's great to be here. 